is the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. The question of how and who should pay for farmers to lobby government or push for changes for their industry is up again as the Victorian Farmers Federation questions how much it's paying a national dairy lobby group for its services. We're going to find out more on that today. Plus, the 2023 long and winding road of wine grape harvest is continuing. We're already noticing that we've we started harvesting red grapes last week and we haven't finished our white grapes yet. I'd love to know how it's going for you. You can get in contact and let us know how that's going. And 95% of Australia's wool goes to one place, goes to China for processing. The push is on now to find more homes for that wool and effectively diversify the market. So is this an option? Currently, uh, Vietnam has this uh, textile processing industry over there, but it's more focused on synthetics and cotton. What we're hoping to achieve through this is to investigate the feasibility of wool processing. More of the Australia industry's push into Vietnam to maybe set up a wool processing industry there on the program. If you're a wool producer, love to know what you think of that. 1300 is the number you can call or text 0467 842 Angus Verley, though, is on the line waiting with some rural news for you. G'day, G'day Angus. G'day, was A survey of more than 800 people in northern Victoria has found there are more people infected with Japanese encephalitis virus than first thought. The results show evidence of previous infection in about 1 in 30 people, suggesting there may be more people in the community who are asymptomatic with the virus. Deputy Chief Health Officer Deborah Friedman says it shows the spread of JEV. What we've found is that about 3% of people, or about 1 in every 30 people, has a blood test that shows that they've been infected with Japanese encephalitis. But it indicates that the spread of infection is, you know, fairly reasonable over a reasonably short period of time. And as I said, it's probably been one to two years that the virus has been present in northern Victoria. You've extended the eligibility criteria for vaccinations. Originally, um, when vaccine first became available, um, we were targeting people who lived or worked on pig farms. And the reason was that we thought that that was where the highest risk was. I think we've learned a little bit from that now. We think that the risk is going to be in people who reside within the surrounds of the Murray River or other inland sort of river um, areas. It's been a year since those catastrophic floods hit the Lismore region. The dairy industry was without doubt one of the hardest hit by the floods in the northern rivers, with hundreds of cows washed away by flood water, bales of fodder too... Crops and pasture ruined, vats of milk dumped and machinery, infrastructure and homes destroyed. A year on at Peter Graham's dairy at Codrington on the Richmond River, milk production is still half of what it should be and it's likely to take another six months to reach full production. The guys locally, like my friends, my dairy farming friends locally, they're all close to the same spot. We're all at different levels, I've said that many times now, but um, we're still 60%. The majority of them are still at 60% of production prior to the flood. Um, So they're talking 18 months to two years before they're back on their feet. And I was surprised that some of them were still there um, at that level. Uh, But it's reality check. We're all in the same 
dare the punt in the same boat. We're just all different ends, different parts of the boat, that's all. A station between Tibberborough and Wanaring is set to become the third largest national park in New South Wales after the New South Wales government purchased Thurloo Station. The station is nearly half a million hectares with wetlands, woodlands and shrublands. Minister for Environment James Griffin says that provides a haven for about 50 threatened species. Acquiring this property of this particular size was really a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for New South Wales and has great national significance because biodiversity doesn't actually recognise state borders. So you've got migratory bird species that come from far and wide to nest and mate in the wetlands. And it also supports at least 114 bird species, which is a huge number, um, more than 39 ecosystems and absolutely spectacular scenery. So not only from a conservation and environment perspective does it tick all the boxes, uh, but it's also going to present a terrific tourism opportunity um, for the, uh, the far northwest and, and outback New South Wales, which is something that we're really excited about as well. This plot of stations is the 13th group purchased by the New South Wales government in the past three years for the purpose of creating more national park. Terry Smith, the president of the Pastoralist Association of West Darling, says the run of purchases is making it hard for the farming communities in the region to compete for land. Yeah, in light, in light of the other purchases I've made uh, out this way in recent times, it seems to be that um, they're slowly turning the whole of the Western Division into a national park. It makes it really hard for for young people to get into farming um, if they've got to continually sort of go up against the I guess the government to buy to buy properties. I mean, there's, there's not many properties that have changed hands in the Western Division that I can think of in the last six, twelve, or eighteen months that the national parks um, haven't purchased. There's really only one I think that I can think of just off the top of my head that the national parks haven't bought. So it, it makes it pretty hard for farming families that want to expand. The flood event in the Murray washing into the Coorong has been affecting the availability of fish for commercial fishers in the area. But with water levels slowly returning to normal, Coorong wild seafood owner and manager Tracy Hill says things are slowly getting back on track. She says navigating the conditions, weather and local environment has been difficult. Well, it's a bit hard also with the seals because... <laughs> You'll fish for a couple of days and then the seals will turn up and so you've got to pull your nets up and stop for a couple of days till they go somewhere else and then you try again. So it, everything's impacted by either weather conditions or the seals or even just the location of the fish. Sometimes if, if they're in amongst the weed, you can't fish in the weed either because your nets just get classed with algae and then you, you can't catch any fish. It's a very complicated and and difficult way to make a living, but um, if you pay attention and you, you know, use your knowledge and skills, you're also reliant on what water flows down the river system and what they let out the barrages and, and how wide, wide and deep your Murray mouth is as well. So it, it just all impacts on it. And was that's it for Rural News. Yeah, well, we've had ringers from the top end and a few shows like that. Fishing in the Coorong. By those standards, sounds like a pretty interesting one. Angus, thank you for that. Angus Verley there with Rural News. The Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. One of the major questions that always faces agriculture is why so many lobby groups and do farmers get bang 
for their buck with all of these groups as well. Well, a major fight over funding could be brewing that could decide the future and function of lobby groups in Australia. Yet, the Victorian Farmers Federation is questioning why it's paying over $350,000 in fees to the national lobby group in dairy called the Australian Dairy Farmers. Emma Germano is the president of the VFF and can join us to talk more about it now. Welcome back to the program. Thank you. Uh, why now? Why question how much you're paying to Australian dairy farmers now? I think it's interesting because why now are we talking about it? I, you know, it hit the media yesterday um, based on a letter that was sent in October of last year. But why now? I think um, uh, the VFF is certainly considering its future in regards to resourcing and not just financial resourcing, but we've got to be talking about the outcomes of advocacy and how do we measure that? It's really difficult. We need to be financially sustainable, all of those things. Um, and we've been considering our um, the payments that we make to all of our peak um, bodies and just understanding how do we demonstrate value to the farmers who pay a VFF membership when there's a lot of money going out the door. Um, and, you know, most people, I think, don't even understand this very um, colourful uh, ecosystem of agricultural organisations that exist in Australia. I think there's something like 270 plus um, all fighting for the advocacy space and, and trying to make an impact on behalf of um, members and farmers. Yeah, so obviously people, farmers, fund themselves and pay fees to the Victorian Farmers Federation to be members, but then you're ongoing, you're paying fees to, to other groups like Australian Dairy Farmers and National Farmers Federation, for example. How much are you paying a year in fees to other groups? So last year it was seven hundred and nineteen thousand dollars that came in outdoor, um, you know, out for out out sorry in our front door and out our back door to these other organisations. And I just want to be really really clear: uh, we all have to justify, particularly the VFF. We all have have to justify our worth and and make sure that farmers believe in the value and deliver on that money that farmers give to us. But I do think that we've got. A bit of a pyramid scheme set up here where farmers are paying for all of these organisations to exist and are they getting the value out of the money that they pay? And I think it's a fair and reasonable question and it's one that we at the VFF have to justify also. So I'm certainly not saying this is everybody else's problem but not us. Uh, we had our AGM yesterday and, you know, we're using um, investment income that's been set up from a long time ago to fund our operations and rightly we've got people saying, well, is that right and are you wasting money? And, and the question, I guess, has to exist for all of these groups that, like I said, are, are essentially in this... Um, and in this case, half, half the funds that you're paying a year for other membership organisations is going to the one group, Australian Dairy Farmers. Yeah, and again, don't want to pick on um, ADF, uh, but yes, the funding model there also means that we're <clears throat> not just paying for the farmers that are actually members of the VFF UDV, um, we're actually paying based on the literage of milk from every uh, Victorian uh, dairy farmer. So, in fact, we're pa paying for people that are not members of the UDV VFF um, in any case, and we're saying, hang on a minute, this this is a lot of money and we have to we have to think about a better and more sustainable model. Are you going to continue to pay or are you going to stop paying those fees? Look, we are in the position where we've said we must have a conversation now. So we, we don't want to continue to pay at that financial level, but we also understand that, you know, these kind of things have to be, you know, given – we have to give notice of these sorts of things and we've extended the invitation to ADF to start a conversation around it because, you know, we're all struggling to – well, not struggling, but we're all working out how do we keep the lights on um, and we also don't want to put ADF in a position where, um, you know, they then can't do the job that they are doing for farmers. And we, of course, believe that there should absolutely be national representation for dairy farmers. But how that happens is 
what the question has to be about, not what is happening. So we all agree we want advocacy, but we often disagree about how that advocacy should happen. And I just don't see the point why we're, you know, all of these organisations are paying a company secretary. We all have an office. We all have board fees. On and on and on it goes of expenses that, you know, are often duplicated and triplicated um, on behalf of farmers who pay the bill for, for all of us to exist. Mm-hmm. And in terms then of the, the future going forward, the dairy industry looked at their fee structure, didn't they? Didn't they side on, on a new way forward through the dairy plan, but clearly nothing has changed in terms of what you're being charged. Yeah, and I think that the frustrating thing for that is that that really um, fractured the dairy industry. And I mean, ADF talk about this themselves. You know, a lot of people have spoken about this negative culture. And again, it's not just dairy. I don't, I'm not, I absolutely don't want to be picking on one organisation. But for all of that conversation to have happened, it was, um, you know, it did create quite a lot of negativity. There was so much resource put into the consultation and going around all the different states around Australia. How do you want dairy advocacy to look? And then largely, most people say that there's been no change. And that's disappointing. So, you know, what's the the first catalyst for change? Is it us saying, hang on a second, VFF, UDV are not going to pay this huge um, sum of money? That might start a conversation in a different manner. Um, And and like I said, we don't want any guns to any heads, but it's certainly, we have to have the conversation and we we have to do it across um, Australian advocacy for agriculture. I want to talk to you about some other things, but just finally on this, uh, is one of the reasons you're looking at things so closely due to the fact that the VFF has falling membership itself? So, uh, you know, there's been multiple reports about this. Essentially, our membership has stagnated. So we're not losing the 9% of members per annum. Um, Yes, there's things that have been printed in company reports and financial statements that are about whether members are financial or unfinancial and and inconsistency even in regards to the way that we do reporting, which is simply not good enough. We've kind of stagnated. We've stopped that big decline, but there's always going to be a decline because we have less and less farmers all of the time. So we don't want less and less farmers having to pay more and more to keep organisations like the VFF going. And yes, we're having a very real conversation with ourselves now about what's acceptable. Is it acceptable for us to have operating losses and chip into investment income? um, Or should that investment income be set aside for special projects and actually um, investing back into the organisation and investing back into farmers and, and the community? And I think we all probably agree that that's where we need to get to. But to get to that point, we have to make some significant changes. And of course, change always comes with quite a bit of resistance because it's great to, um, I guess, say this is where we want to end up. But the how do we get there, uh, you know, it creates fear and and people don't want to see um, the legacy of these sort of things being eroded. Uh, You're listening to the Victorian Country Hour. Warwick along with you. Emma Germano, the head of the Victorian Farmers Federation, is speaking with you as well, uh, questioning the amount of fees they're paying within lobby groups in agriculture. And uh, there are quite a number, as you've been hearing. On another issue, Emma Germano, I wanted to speak to you about this because this was something raised on our program on Friday, and that was under uh, the discussion of the Victorian government uh, outlying how much it will be paying to farmers in terms of compensation for transmission lines and infrastructure being built on their property. Under that discussion, there was a, some concern raised for farmers about a change to the style of the project, which means it's not open anymore to legal challenge. One of the guests on the program was Catherine Myers, who is a potato grower from Torello, north of Ballarat. Here's what she had to say about that change. We were in the process of challenging that in court. So on Wednesday, we should have been in court at the directions hearing getting a date set to properly challenge this, what we believe is an unlawful project. On Monday morning, um, the Minister D'Ambrosio brought out this Government Gazette announcement and a directive saying that she's taking over the project 
um, as a Victorian government project. And it's a new project, so it's no longer subject to... We can't appeal anything that's happened in the past. It's a clean slate. And when those were concerns were raised, we asked the minister responsible who called in later in the program, Lily D'Ambrosio, who's the Minister for Energy, Environment and Climate Change, about that change. Here's a little of that exchange. I want to see if you could clarify something that was just raised on this program earlier. There was a suggestion earlier when we were speaking to one of the members about the compensation landholders there. You had used your powers as minister this week to take control of the the projects to effectively reduce its chances of legal challenge or the ability for legal challenge. Is that the case? No, that's not the case. A government gazette earlier this week? Well, the government will help people choose to interpret it as a matter for them, Uh, but this is uh, the fact, and uh, I'm here right now at a National Energy Minister's meeting uh, where uh, everyone across the country, uh, all states, territories, regardless of their political persuasions, know and agree that transmission uh, is a big challenge for all of us uh, as we transition to renewable energy. And uh, everyone wants to see and understand that we need to... Oh, move, I understand uh, ministers are talking oh, about no, this, but the point of no, this let, question no, is... Let, let me finish. No, let me finish, is it, please. Uh, have you reduced finish. the opportunity for legal challenge? Want, well, like I said to you, let me finish. Uh, what we've done this week with that gazelle is to ensure that we move uh, uh, quickly uh, on uh, ensuring that transmission projects are done. And that, of course, includes all of the necessary consultations that need to happen with communities so that they feel uh, that they listen, that they are heard and they listen to uh, and that um, they can have confidence in processes. Energy Minister Lily D'Ambrosio on Friday's Country Hour talking about that decision. Have you um, looked into this change of the Gazette and what it means to farmers in Victoria with these projects, Emma Germano? Yeah, we actually engaged with um, Minister D'Ambrosio's staff and asked a bunch of questions that remain unanswered at this point in time. I just, uh, listening to that um, little clip there, I I just, how frustrating for that community to say, oh, we're going to make sure that the community feels like it's being consulted. Well, I, you know what, that community does not feel at any point in time that they have been adequately consulted because consulted doesn't mean, oh, we come and tell you what we're going to do to you and you tell us that you don't like it and we tell you too bad anyway. It's going to happen anyway. Um, and to say that, you know, transmission's a really big problem and we all know that it's a really big problem, so what we're going to do is fast track the whole thing. I mean, what are these unintended consequences going to be? Um, what's interesting now is I feel like that that community particularly of potato growers in and around the Ballarat region um, under the uh, Western Renewable Link were kind of seen as this group that had their own problem. But what's going to happen now is as BNI West transmission line comes on, there's, you know, things happening out in Gippsland, whether it's Marinus Link or Star of the South, there's pipelines, there's all sorts of things going on. This is now becoming an issue that is going to affect every single farmer in the state and we need to rally around that and say it is not okay just to cut through prime agricultural land because you need to get it done ASAP because it won't be until, you know, in 10 years' time or in 20 years' time when we go, geez, the price of food is really skyrocketed hasn't it oh what happened oh well we cut through all of this productive land and we changed the nature of these businesses and we said it was because we wanted to have cheap power bills Uh, that's probably when we'll stop and say oh gee we might have got this wrong and we've got a community right now saying hang on a minute get it right 
things like, oh, can we underground? The response simply being, it's too expensive. And it's like, it's too expensive according to what? Did you factor in the value of that land properly or the fact that that particular soil only exists in that particular place? Did you factor in that you can't grow those potatoes somewhere else and the price of food and what happens there? It's not okay for the community not to be part of this journey uh, because we know we need renewables. We know we need transmission across the state and across, indeed, the rest of the country. Let's plan it and get it right because it might be right just to underground it or move it somewhat but those questions just don't seem to be actually on the table and this will not be the only project looking at connecting renewable energy projects to the wider grid is this going to be a major issue facing the vff in not only this year but for years to come yeah, absolutely, which is why we said get back to basics and um, sit down with us and other groups and, uh, you know, work out a strategic plan about how you're going to do this. It's like building a house, putting all of your appliances in and then saying, oh, we forgot to put in the power sockets. It's like it doesn't work this way and we've said get back to basics, get it right because we all want it to happen and there's farmers out there who have renewable facilities on their land who it's not connected to any grid and they too want that um, that income and to see that you know come to fruition and they're also frustrated by the fact that there's all of these delays and the delays are happening simply because the consultation process hasn't been right from the beginning. Have a plan and then work out how to execute it. Don't just go hell for And the change now. through the Gazette doesn't seem like the government will change its tact anytime soon. No, it certainly seems like what they're going to do is invest a lot of power into one person, which is just not how a democratic state should operate. There should never be a sense that there's no independent umpire or no right of appeal or, you know, a consultation um, process that could be disingenuous. That, That should never be the case. On the other side, though, there is a compensation scheme announced from the government to fund above what the other uh, other schemes from the companies were already providing. That's a win for farmers, isn't it? Oh, like me coming to your house, Warwick, and saying, I'm just going to um, take your front room here and I'm going to give you 20 bucks for it. You happy with that? <laughs> it's like, well, what's the number based on? Like, the, you know, how have we come up with this number? No, we're not happy with it. We, we acknowledge that when we agree that transmission lines have to go somewhere, there should be compensation. It shouldn't be just based on the land value because there's production that happens that also means money in the community and money to the landholder and whatever else. It needs to be based on production. It needs to take into consideration the way a particular farm operates and it also needs to include the rehabilitation of the land, um, you know, at the end of life on some of these things. It just to come up with an arbitrary figure that is one size fits all actually demonstrates how little understanding um, and this, you know, the the government has about it um, and that lack of consultation. Because in some cases, it might be completely offensive to receive that amount of money. And in other cases, you might be able to change your farming operations ever so slightly and it's more money coming in and that's great. But again, it, you know, doesn't pass the pub test because we don't know how how they strike a number like that. Emma Germano, thanks for your time. Thank you. That is the president of the Victorian Farmers Federation, Emma Germano, speaking to you there. A couple of issues to cover, how much they're funding in fees to the Australian Dairy Farmers Group and other groups, but also uh, that change to the Gazette, meaning uh, less likely for legal challenge for some of these projects as well and what it means for farmers with compensation paid from the Victorian government. I'd love to hear from you. You can send us a text 0467 842 722. Uh, Let's quickly go to wine harvest, though, or wine grape harvest harvesting company based in Mildura says a third of the vineyards it usually works in won't be picked this vintage. Most of this is due to poor yields caused by disease pressures. This is Jan O'Connor's 35th vintage and she says 2023 is one of the most unusual ones 
she's ever experienced. The vintage has started extremely late this year and we believe it's going to finish around Easter time, which means it's going to be a very, very compressed vintage. We're already noticing that we've we started harvesting red grapes last week and we haven't finished our white grapes yet. So the smaller crops with some of the reds have caused that problem um, or caused that to happen. But this year, probably, our area that we cover will be down over a third um, because people simply will not be picking some areas because of the problems they've had growing fruit this season due to disease pressure. Downy mildews, no doubt, being the main cause of that, but there seem to be some vineyards that are affected worse than others. Do you have any theories around why that's the case? Look, initially people said <clears throat> it was about management, um, where disease has made the best, biggest um, impact, but I don't believe that's the case. I think there are a number of farms out there that have you know, been totally devastated or lost huge amounts and they're, they're damn good growers. So I don't believe it is just management. I, I do also think a lot of things happen. So when a rain event come, were you on the ball to know that there could be a problem? Did you have the staff there to do the extra rounds of spraying? Did you have a chemical already available in the shed to be able to get that extra spray on? Were your machines all working perfectly? Were all the, all the jets unblocked? Were you getting the right coverage? Were you getting the right coverage on your runoff rows when you only had a three row sprayer instead of a one row sprayer? I think a lot of things come into the equation and I think a lot of the rain we got wasn't widespread equally. It came in a lot of scuds. So, you know, not everybody was affected the same way. We've got vineyards where one grower, a good grower, lost 100% of his fruit and 5Ks down the track that the, the other grower had no damage at all. So it's, it's very unusual to point a finger and say what exactly caused the problem. It's just been a multitude of things that have created the issues. How constantly are you keeping up with your clients and knowing what they need? One of the things, particularly in a compressed vintage like this, is the importance of communication between the grower, us and the winery. We sometimes are expected to pull harvesters out of nowhere and we can't do that. We only have a certain amount of harvesters and mostly we only have a certain amount of drivers and a certain amount of tractors and so communication is absolutely vital to our business at this time of the year. Even in this this hard vintage, um, even in good vintages, it's still really, really important. What's it been like finding staff this year to keep your harvesters running? We have a terrific team this year. We scored three new operators that have just stepped up and been fabulous. They already come from a background in operating machinery overseas. They're the ones we look for. Occasionally we think, oh my goodness, we need a couple of more operators, but it might only be for a couple of nights. So we, we need to keep the people that we've got working consistently so that they are happy with, you know, with what they're doing. So those nights when we get a call and you know, I say to Richard, well, I can go out on the tractor tonight and maybe I can find somebody else and he looks at me aghast. Um, but it, it, that doesn't happen too often. If it does, we just have to deal with it. So sometimes we can find people come from surprising areas that might just pop in and help us for a couple of nights. But you, you need to be careful with what you do with people. The worst thing we ever want to do is put people, our, our staff, under pressure. And, and that's why training of staff is extremely important at the start of each vintage. You mentioned that vintage will be finished for you in about four weeks. 
what happens after that. So end of vintage, we've got to get all the machines back to their bases and it's really important that they get um, decommissioned. So we look at what needs to be done during the rebuild program. Um, They need to be thoroughly cleaned. We have, particularly with our big machines, we have an ongoing issue in many areas with rats getting into the harvesters and causing lots of damage so we need to be on top of that so once the machines are back and um, we need to get them washed before it gets too cold because it's not a very um, it's a job to be done in in the warm weather Um, and as I said machines pulled apart and put away and when then we draw up our rebuild list of what we've got to do so that we can order our our goods that we need for the rebuild and then hopefully people get a bit of time off we sit back and think well we've just survived another one what an attitude. Jan O'Connor there from O'Connor Harvesting speaking with Kelly Hollingworth about, well, one of the stranger vintages in her 35 years of doing it. You're listening to The Country Hour. We've got the full weather report on the way. Plus, we're going to talk Vietnamese wool processing. That's a push by the industry. And we'll head to a carbon or a farming carbon conference in northeast Victoria today as well. Right now, though, let's find out what's making regional news with Rio Davis. Good afternoon, Rio. Good afternoon, Warwick. Making news around regional Victoria, the arson and explosive squad say they're confident a fatal house fire in Mildura at the weekend was arson. The Indi Avenue property was completely destroyed on Sunday night and the body of a 52-year-old man was found inside. An investigator says early indications suggest the person who lit the fire knew the victim was home. Meanwhile, police are investigating a second house fire in the region. Emergency crews were called to the scene on Etowanda Avenue at 8 o'clock this morning, where they were confronted with an extensive fire in a front room. Firefighters managed to contain the fire with no injuries reported. Paramedics were on the scene of a car accident in Western Victoria. Ten vehicles were called to the incident on the Wimmera Highway between Jung and Murtoa just before 11 o'clock. The Wimmera Highway is closed between Murtoa and the Henty Highway while emergency services attend the crash. A man has been flown to hospital in Melbourne in a serious but stable condition after a brawl in Albury overnight. Emergency services were called to Creek Street at about half past eight last night where they found seven people in a melee. Paramedics treated a man and woman, both aged 37, and took them to Albury Base Hospital where the man underwent surgery. A 46-year-old man was arrested in the backyard of a home on the same street and has faced court today. The Australian Transport Safety Bureau has released a preliminary report into a freight train derailment in near Geelong late last year. The Transport Safety Investigation has confirmed significant rainfall recorded prior to the incident led to a culvert collapsing. The freight train was travelling at around 80 kilometres per hour when it hit the channel, leading to the derailment. The ATSB is continuing its investigation. And construction has started ahead of the 46th annual Port Ferry Folk Festival. Volunteers will spend around 7,000 hours transforming the Port Ferry Cricket Ground into a multi-stage venue that will host nearly 100 acts. Thousands of patrons are expected to attend the four-day event, which starts on March the 10th. For more regional news at any time, you can visit www.abc.net.au forward slash news. Thanks, Rio. Rio Davis there with regional news headlines. On ABC Radio Victoria, you're with Warwick Long for the Victorian Country Hour. A lot of your texts coming in, particularly on, well, getting bang for buck on levies uh, that you pay 
particularly for lobbying. The VFF's questioning how much it pays to the National Dairy Lobby, uh, over $350,000. This text says the ADF, Australian dairy farmers should be value for money if it was run properly. The states have failed to hold the ADF accountable. The past president was more concerned about the 7% of milk in South Australia than the 80% of milk in Victoria. Now 3% of milk in Queensland is dictating the organisation. Victoria needs to pull its weight more at the ADF. There, That's coming in on the text line. Uh, this one saying when parasites get out of control in our animals, we give them a good treatment. Is there a parasite remover that works on levy grabbers too? Uh, I don't exactly know which way you're angry, but that is certainly a very pointed text. Thank you for that. And this one saying, uh, we don't have a hope. Oh, this is particularly on the change in the Gazette uh, to the transmission projects and what that means for farmers with transmission projects being built through their land. We don't have a bloody hope, says this texter. As farmers, we're sick of all the talk. We are all for renewables, but why sacrifice prime ag land to do this? It's just stupidity. And this one saying, Emma Germano's description of the consultation for HVT lines describes exactly how wind farm developers do community engagement. The state government needs to go back to square one and run a transparent process to develop an equitable and environmentally sound roadmap for renewables, then enforce and regulate implementation. There, the text coming in. You can add your thoughts, 0467 842 Let's go to the Weather Bureau and find out what's happening weather-wise around our state. Though today, Hannah Marsh is there, Senior Forecaster at the Weather Bureau. G'day, Hannah. Hi, Warwick. Still that relatively settled week? Relatively settled. We've still seen some uh, drizzly showers this morning about southern central parts, but all of that's amounted to less than uh, 0.4 of a millimetre since 9am. Barely drizzle really that then, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't really count, does it? Um, But we do have a low-pressure system that's going to form just off the uh, East Gippsland coast near the New South Wales border, and we'll see an increase in some shower activity in the far east of uh, East Gippsland overnight tonight and into tomorrow morning, and there is also the chance of seeing uh, an isolated thunderstorm out that way as well. Otherwise, we're generally looking at a dry afternoon um, with these showers in the south, expected to clear pretty soon. Um, Temperature-wise, we've already been up to uh, 27.5 degrees at Yarrawonga, uh, 26 at Mildura, 25 at Shepparton, uh, 24 at East Sale, and also at Bendigo. It's been up to 20 degrees at Mount Hotham, uh, 19 at Horsham, and uh, 18 at Geelong and just uh, 17.6 so far in the city in Melbourne. Tomorrow we've got a weak uh, front that's going to just clip uh, Tasmania and bring some isolated shower activity really on and south of the ranges. So we'll see an increase in that shower activity tomorrow. There might still be some uh, lingering thunderstorm activity about uh, Gippsland as well. Temperature-wise, pretty similar, maybe up a degree or so. So we're looking at uh, 21 degrees for Melbourne, getting up to 27 degrees and sunny for Mildura, 24 and cloudy at Horsham and also at Bendigo, getting up to uh, 26 at Shepparton, 28 at Albury, Wodonga and uh, 20 degrees for Warrnambool. 
Then as we head uh, further afield into Thursday, we'll start seeing that shower activity easing but still maintaining some shower activity on and south of the ranges in a southwesterly airflow. Uh, but remaining dry across the north as well. Uh, and then temperatures will slowly start to increase as we head towards the weekend with that shower activity contracting to the east as we have a trough uh, that develops. We'll start seeing winds become more north-easterly as we head into Saturday and Sunday. Temperatures starting to increase and uh, some shower and potentially thunderstorm activity being confined to eastern parts of the state and uh, then the next substantial system we've got coming through will be on uh, Monday and into Tuesday mm. with uh, cooler temperatures and uh, sh- shower and wind- windy conditions uh, to follow. Oh, we'll have to keep an eye on that. Might be the first taste of autumn, is it? Mm. Well, it's a bit hard to say <laughs> at this stage, but uh, as we said yesterday on paper, it does uh, start tomorrow. Yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> if only on paper. Hannah, thanks very much for that. <laughs> Thank you. Hannah Marsh there, Senior Forecaster at the Weather Bureau, taking us through the full forecast there. You're listening to the Country Hour, and 95% of Australian wool is bought and processed in China, and wool growers have long raised concerns about being too reliant on one buyer, particularly one buyer that has been uh, in trade tensions with, uh, with Australia for some time now. Well, Wool Producers Australia have now received funding for an industry representative to pursue processing opportunities in Vietnam. Is this the opening of a new wool processing market? Joe Hall, CEO of Wool Producers Australia, says it's about expanding markets for wool growers. We saw the opportunity arise to put in an expression of interest um, into the OzHub uh, process, which is an initiative between uh, DFAT or the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and the Australian Chamber of Commerce, Vietnam. So under that EOI process, uh, industries were invited to put forward uh, applications to investigate future trade opportunities with Australia or between Australia and Vietnam. Following our report from looking into domestic and diversified processing last year, where Vietnam was identified as one of four key locations, we thought it was a great opportunity to put in an application and we're really grateful that we were accepted. And what will this role entail for this representative? So at this stage, uh, the resource which will be based in Vietnam will look to establish networks and and work within existing networks within Vietnam to investigate the feasibility or the opportunity to look at early stage wool processing in Vietnam. Uh, Vietnam already has quite an established textile industry. What, What role does it play in the wool market? Well, traditionally, um, or currently, uh, Vietnam has this uh, textile processing industry over there, but it's more focused on synthetics and cotton. What we're hoping to achieve through this is to investigate the feasibility of wool processing, um, bearing in mind that AWI, or the Woolmark company, has had resources in Vietnam for a number of years and, and looking to generate interest within the Vietnamese processing sector, we'll look to capitalise on that and we'll work with that reason, uh, with the AWI staff in country as well. What do you think has been holding back uh, the growth of Vietnam as a player in wool processing? I think it's possibly uh, a couple of things. Um, one is a, a lack of 
knowledge of of wool processing. It is quite a long and convoluted supply chain. The other thing, there's some internal regulations that um, probably haven't been conducive to looking at, at wet processings, um, including some pretty strict textile effluent restrictions. So we'll be looking to for some pathways to overcome those barriers that are in place. And why do you see this is important for wool growers, uh, diverse, diversity when it comes to uh, wool processing around the world? Well, we're in the, currently in the situation where we have a, a great trading partner um, in China, but uh, we're looking to for market expansion. So that's why we undertook the work last year and the, the year before investigating the feasibility of expanding current markets and, and building on the great relationship that we have. If you look at some of the trade tensions there's been between Australia and China, some commodities have been hit with uh, market access issues, but wool remained unscathed. Can you put that down to the fact that uh, while Australia is reliant on China for it to buy and process so much wool, well, China's so reliant on Australia for that uh, raw wool? Well, definitely. China is very invested in the wool industry um, and Australia being the largest producer of apparel wool. We just uh, it, it's seen the evolution of a really mutually beneficial relationship between the Australian wool production sector and the Chinese uh, processing sector. So we've had that good relationship in place and, and that's continued unabated over the last few years. That's Joe Hall, CEO of Wool Producers Australia, choosing her words carefully, I'd suggest, to Josh Becker, our reporter there. You're listening to The Country Hour. It is 14 to 1. For farmers and landholders in Victoria, the question of whether to sell or not sell carbon credits is up for discussion today. The the Farming Carbon Conference is on in Beechworth right now, and our reporter Annie Brown is there. Annie, take us there. What's it like and what's up for discussion in Beechworth? I was. Yeah, it's busy here at the Carbon Farming Conference up here in Beechworth. The car park is packed. It's struggling to find a spot close to the George Kerriford Hotel up at Mayday Hills where it's happening all today. At last count, I think the head um, total was about 130 people have showed up for this conference. But, you know, compared to some other farming conferences I've been to in the last few years, it's a pretty good turnout, I think. So I think it shows just sort of the interest and the the popularity of a topic like carbon farming. Now, we've already heard from uh, a mix of people today, guest speakers, politicians, uh, also some producers as well who've got up and told a bit about their experiences when it comes to carbon farming in the room. And we've got a real big mix of people attending as well, as you know, from producers to people who work within the industry. And, you know, why are people here? Well, Agriculture, as we know, is the fourth largest emitter of carbon behind a lot of energy industries as well. So it's been a big point of interest for a lot of people to get in and also try and figure out the carbon market. But we've also heard from our local federal member for Indi here, Helen Haynes, is at the conference. She was one of the first speakers this morning talking about uh, a policy that we first heard about uh, back in April last year in the lead up to the federal election. And she wants to bring back the agricultural extension offices. 
So she says in the lead up to the May budget, she's been in discussions with the Agriculture Minister Murray Watt about trying to bring in those 200 agriculture extension officers that she thinks that we need on the ground in regional Australia to help farmers and producers, yeah, get to carbon neutrality or just to help them lower some of their emissions as well. So that's been a big talking point this morning. But I'm also joined uh, this afternoon by Lachlan Campbell. He is the Regional Agriculture Land Care Facilitator with the North East Catchment Management Authority, the organisation that has organised the conference today. Good afternoon, Lachlan. Thanks for joining us on the Country Hour. Pleasure. Annie, thank you very much for coming up. And uh, we've been really well supported uh, with this uh, seminar today with uh, about 130, 40 people. Um, Our speakers have been really gracious in providing their time. And uh, the whole idea of today was to try and unpack what is incredibly complex, this whole carbon story in the farming space. I would say after today, it's still got a long way to go. There's legislation, there's a whole lot of changes, there's global pressure from the global marketplace, there's national pressures, there's local issues, and then you have the supply chain, which seems to be uh, driving the change uh, faster than other areas at present, and the ESG movement, looking at farmers supplying these supply chains, whether it's coals or... um, uh, Mars or some of the other uh, bigger companies, how you can put your product in there because they're really conscious about their footprint and they've, their shareholders and customers are really requesting clean methods of production. So there's a lot of information. It's really complex and I think there's a long way to go. Um, one of the key messages out of today, Warwick, is that you should keep your carbon. You will Ultimately, uh, it will help you uh, access some of these supply chains, but it might even help you uh, save you going having to buy your own carbon back down the track as some of these legislative processes unfold. Um, and so I think that's been a key message is understand if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. So measure your carbon levels. Uh, have understand what that is, but also understand uh, whether you have surplus carbon and, and how that might be best used for your own business. Um, we hear of stories of people jumping in early, and uh, that's all well and good, and it might suit their business model, but largely uh, this space is still to be determined, and some of the contracts are out to 25 years, so uh, there's a long way to go and lots of elements of risk. So, yeah, there's been a lot of talk about, I guess, the confusion when it comes to carbon farming as well. And like you said, some of the advice that's already been put forward today is for producers to hold on to their carbon credits and not be too hasty to get rid of it too quickly as you don't know what it might be worth down the track. How do farmers and producers sort of go through that? You know, like carbon farming is a topic that comes up all the time, but yet there's all this information out there. But the advice is like, you know, don't jump in but hold back but how do you get involved then look i think it's about building your knowledge base i i I think there's a lot of anxiety out there in rural australia and trying to unpack uh, the carbon story and what it means for them and i I guess what out of today i'd suggest is it's it's about knowledge build your knowledge build your understanding understand your own circumstances and what your long-term intentions are um, and don't be forced uh, into into making quick decisions by people offering shiny objects. Um, sit back and let this unfold and see how it, you might, as I say, you might need these these credits uh, to to remain, you know, to contain run your business, but also be attractive to enter some of these higher value supply chains that will become about. Um, so I guess the message out of today is it's around knowledge and it's around building your knowledge, building your comfort in this space. 
ultimately there's no rush to do anything at this point but consider your options and think it through and get advice if you don't know yourself seek advice unbiased advice i would suggest <laughs> um, because there are many people out there offering a range of solutions that perhaps aren't in your best interest so that would be my word of warning i think Anna. so the northeast um, catchment management authority has put on this conference today you know why the topic of carbon farming in particular that you want to focus on yeah, well, that's a good question, uh, Annie. Look, the, the, the biggest thing is um, I think how institutions like CMAs and, and government departments, the role they can play is providing this knowledge base, providing an unbiased knowledge um, environment so that uh, people can come in and, and listen freely to uh, to get to build their, their, their base and, and make those long-term decisions. Um, I think it's absolutely one of our roles going forward is to try to demystify and support farmers' transition to a lower emissions uh, future. And I think our, all our ambitions are aimed at trying to reduce our emissions, and, that, and that, that's really important. But it's also around managing your enterprise to remain in business, ultimately, uh, and achieve your, the outcomes you're trying to. But trying to, um, yeah, trying to you know, uh, remain productive, efficient, and also provide a, you know, a social outcome, which is reducing your emissions footprint. Hmm. What do you think is the biggest concern for producers and farmers in the room today? You know, is it still that challenge of productivity versus, yeah, sustainability? Yeah, look, I think that's really important. The productivity question, you know, you've got to stay in business if you're farming. There's no under But I think the confusion is just around the different voices that are in this space. Whether it's, uh, you know, commercial people wanting you to sign up for carbon credits, whether it's government, whether it's private supply chains, whether it's your neighbour... There's so much confusion, so many conflicting um, stories and anecdotes and people's recommendations that I think uh, farmers will be really struggling. I know I'm a small farmer and I struggle to keep up with it. It is changing so quickly, this whole space. Now, Richard Eckard said it, it took about, I think, 30 million years to develop the uh, four intestines in a cow. And here we are in the last 30 years, 20 years, trying to reduce emissions. And so the evolution of this whole thing will take time. And I don't think there's any overnight solution. Um, but as I say, through good science and, and, and good legislation, change will occur. If people are looking for information, what are some good places for them to start? Oh, look, your commodity groups, whether it's MLA or Wine Australia or Horticulture Australia uh, or GRDC, go to those groups. They're doing a lot of work. They work for farmers and generally their information is unbiased. Uh, so that's where I'd go. I'd start. Talk to your you know, local government agencies uh, and speak to people in those areas um, and identify people who you consider to have a good view and are generally unbiased, don't have a profit motive uh, to uh, encourage them to go down that pathway. So you stick clear of people trying to grab your money off you. <laughs> well, take your money and give you shiny objects. Yes, that's exactly right. And, and I think, you know, there's a bit of that going on at present, I, I think. Um, I hear anecdotes of it. So, yeah, be very careful. Lachlan, thanks so much for your time this afternoon. My pleasure. Thank you for the time. It's Lachlan Campbell there. Work. Uh, he's the Regional Agriculture Land Care Facilitator with the Northeast Catchment Management Authority there. We've got to get back inside to the conference. The panel discussion is about to kick off, and so I'm sure there'll be a lot of heated questions coming out of the audience that we'll want to sit and listen to as well. I bet, and I bet it's a fascinating day. Annie Brown, thank you so much for taking us there today. Thank you. Annie Brown, our reporter in Beechworth at a carbon farming conference in Beechworth today, 140-odd farmers there discussing, well, what to do. And a lot of that discussion appears to be hold on to what you've got. We'll hear more from that conference in the coming days.
Again, here from Victoria's Livestock Markets right now, we'll start today in Ballarat with the Sheep and Lamb Market Report and Shiona Lamb. Good afternoon. Lamb supply increased to 26,100 drawn for. Quality remained very good through the heavy trade and export categories. All usual buying group attended. The market opened dearer on the light store lambs and trade lambs and became erratic as the sale progressed on the light trade store types. Well-finished trade lambs and heavy export categories remained strong throughout the market. Light trade sold for a few dollars either side of firm, depending on weight and quality. Medium trade was firm. Heavy trade gained $4 a head. Heavy export lambs sold to a top of $2.97 a head and were to $7 to $10 a head stronger on last week's levels. Extra store buyers were present and active in the market. Well-bred light lambs were to 10 dearer, while the secondary type slipped $15 a head in places. Lambs back to the paddock under 18 kilos made... $12 to $146 a head and over 18 kilos, $138 to $168. Lambs to the trade to suit MK orders under 18 kilos sold $121 to $140. An export full score over 26 kilos sold $215 to $297 a head. There are still 11,400 cheap to be sold. This is Shiona Lamb at Ballarat for MLA. Thanks for that, Shiona. Let's go to Wodonga and the cattle market there is with Leanne Dax. Good afternoon. Just over 1,100 cattle sold to a bigger buying group, which gave the market some intensity. Some trade categories had bursts of strong bidding, heavy cattle in reasonable numbers, and some processors were keen to secure heavy bullocks. It was an excellent yarding of cows, and vendors were rewarded with intense bidding throughout the sale. Veal jumped 40 cents at the top end, 3.40 to 4.74. Trade steers were few, 3.65 to 4 dollars. Trade heifers gained 15 cents, 3.35 to 3.90. Feeder heifers medium weight were back 10, 3.30 to 3.73. Feeder steers gained 4, 3.55 to 3.95. Heavy steers were firm, 3.36 to 3.75. Bullocks eased back 4, 3.55 to 3.80. Heavy heifers with shape, 3.30 to 3.55. Heavy cows lifted 6 cents, 2.90 to 3.15. The middle run of leaner types, 2.30 to 2.72. And the best bull topped at 316. I'm Leanne Dux for MLA. And we'll go to Nicole Varley at Shepparton. Good afternoon. There were 725 exports of that 395 of cows and 335 trade cattle were also penned. Quality of the offering was mixed with very few heavy finished grind steers or beef bred bullocks. Buyer numbers were still maintained, but cattle suitability meant many meat works went without and more feedlotters and restockers made purchases. The young cattle had a hatful of exceptionally good bee-muscled supplementary fed yearlings. The balance of the offering were plainer, with cattle more suited to the restockers and feedlotters also. The best of the vealers made to $4. The yearling steers, the best top end of them with very few yearling steers available, 435 to 456 for those exceptional bee-muscled types. Yearling heifers, 339 to 410. The, the steer is 500 to 600 kilos, 320 to 365 cents. There was quite a large offering of Frisian steers, quite a lot of heavier ended ones, 285 to 307. The best of the heavy beef cows, 260 to 317. The heavy dairy cows, 217 to 286, averaging around 260 for the D ones. This is Nicole Varley from Shepparton. Thanks very much for that, Nicole. That's about all the time we have for you on the Country Hour today. Lindsay's actually sent a text saying, Is Scott's refrigerated logistics involuntary administration or receivership? 
I can tell you they're in voluntary administration with Cordamentha appointed receiverships. Clear and mud, clear as mud for you there, Lindsay. Hope that helps out. But that is going to be a big story to follow in the coming days, particularly in the transport space. Thanks for joining us on the Country Hour today. We'll be back with you at the same time tomorrow. Have a great afternoon.